This evening we're going to consider peace and joy through faith in Christ. Peace and joy through faith in Christ. And we're looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through to 8. We're starting a new chapter, Romans chapter 5. And the first thing to notice is what? That it starts with the word, therefore. I think we're used to these clues now, aren't we? Therefore, look at verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is that whatever is being said by the Apostle Paul in verse 1 follows on from what he has already said in the previous chapter. And that is that we are all under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. The law, far from justifying us, exposes our sin and our guilt before God. The only way to be saved from your sin and to be justified is to receive the righteousness of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified by faith and not by works of the law is a once and for all time declaration by God of your right standing before him. And that happens at the time that you are saved from your sins. When you are first saved from your sins, God declares you as righteous. It's a declaration from heaven. Justification is the consequence of faith and the object of that faith is the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death and his resurrection. We saw that last week. Look at verse 25, the previous chapter, chapter 4 there, who was delivered for our offences and was raised again for our justification. We should never leave out the raised again bit. We praise God that uh, Jesus was uh, crucified for sinners, but we do not have a dead saviour. All who by the grace of God trust in him are forgiven their sins. They have the righteousness of God imputed to them. The example of Abraham was given in chapter 4. He believed the promise of God that in him and his seed all nations shall be blessed. The blessings are spiritual and ultimately the seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham was looking forward, looking ahead to the Saviour coming into the world and all who believe in Jesus are spiritual sons of Abraham and heirs of according to the promise of God. With all that in mind, we can now move on to chapter 5, where we will be considering peace and joy in the crucified and risen Saviour. <coughs> About two th- uh, sorry, 200, 200 treaties or so have been signed in Europe since 1919. And surprise, surprise, almost all of them have been broken. Treaties don't guarantee peace, that's for sure. For example, in 1938, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared peace for our time after attending a summit in Munich, Germany. A year later, 
World War II was declared. What about the peace in your neighbourhood? Maybe you don't have any drugs or crime in your street, not that you've noticed anyway, but what about inside your, the homes in your neighbourhood? Divorce and child abuse seem to be problems all over the place. Peace, not really. There is really no peace in this world that we live in. What about inside us? What about inside our hearts? Maybe around others we manage a cheerful smile. What about when we're alone? God says in the Bible that some cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Are you like that? Pretending to be at peace will never satisfy your craving for a real and enduring peace. You're not alone. Everyone experiences conflicts within themselves and without. The poor, the rich, the unknown, as well as the famous, paupers, princes, there really are no exemptions, there really are no exceptions. The reason why there is no peace is very simple. This is a world that is in rebellion against its maker, almighty God. And it has been like that since the first act of disobedience in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and his wife Eve disobeyed God and they ate the forbidden fruit. That is something that should never happen and it most certainly is not conducive to having peace with God when the creatures disobey the Creator. doesn't matter what the offence is, the very thought of being disobedient to Almighty God should never happen. But it did happen in the Garden of Eden and that opened the floodgates of sin and misery in this world. We have already spent a lot of time considering the fact that all have sinned, that all have rebelled against God. That we all like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to our own way. People who are not trusting in Jesus as their Saviour and their Lord, in other words, the vast majority of the people in this world, they have another Lord. They're not trusting in Jesus as their Lord, but their Lord is the devil. And I'm talking about the majority of people in this world. Their Lord is the devil. He is the prince of this world. He is a liar and a murderer. And when people do their own sinful and selfish will in opposition to the will of God, in other words, when people rebel against God, whenever people sin against God, they are in fact doing the devil's will. Whether they realise it or not, whether they believe in the devil or not, it doesn't matter. They're doing the, the will, the lusts of their father, the devil. However, God, who is rich in mercy, sent his only begotten son to redeem hell-deserving sinners like you and me. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We see that in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and it is only in him 
that a peace that passes all understanding can be found. In order to secure peace with God, the Son of God made himself of no reputation when he came down from his glory into this world of sin. He humbled himself and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, when he took upon him the sins of all who would believe in him. The suffering unto death of Jesus is mentioned twice in the verses before us. In verse 6, it is written that Christ died for the ungodly. And in verse 8, it is written that Christ died for us. That is, all who trust in him for forgiveness and are covered in his righteousness, the righteousness of God. If, like the majority of people in the world, you reject Jesus, then far from having peace with God, the wrath of God abides on you. There is no reason to imagine that things will get any better for you if you are not trusting in Jesus. Things will not get better. And there's no reason why they should, unless you repent and you believe the gospel. Even death will not be a release for you. In fact, that is when things get really bad, when you die. Just listen to what Paul said to persecuted Thessalonian Christians about unbelievers. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7 through to 9, Paul said, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Very strong words from the Apostle Paul about unbelievers who obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite us all having rebelled against God, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As it is written in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, as well as being a demonstration of the justice of God, his mercy, his holiness, the incarnate Son of God being lifted up to die on the cross as a sacrifice for sin was a demonstration of the love of God. When you think about all those things, the righteousness, the justice of God, his holiness, mercy, his grace and his love, we would know nothing about those things if it were not for the cross. 
If anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus, who rejects Christ, talks to you about love and you're a Christian, you need to point them to the greatest act of love ever. Christ Jesus on the cross, God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When a person has peace with God through faith in his only begotten Son, he is no longer an enemy of God. Rather, he is adopted as a child of God. And his heavenly Father gives him every other spiritual blessing through faith in Christ Jesus. Of necessity, peace with God is the blessing from which the other blessings flow. You need to have peace with God first. Just look at verse 2 in chapter 5. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Those who have peace with God, the peace spoken of in verse 1 there, peace with God through faith, through our Lord Jesus Christ, those who have peace with God have access to the mercy seat of God in heaven and they are invited to come freely with a holy boldness and with confidence by the blood of Jesus and covered with his righteousness. Dear Christian, you are brought into that grace and kept there by the grace of God according to his great and unchangeable love for you. Loves you now? He will love you tomorrow and forevermore. But you'd you'd know that anyway, or at least I trust you would know that. After all, it ought to be your experience and your testimony that even though you do not yet sit in heavenly places with Jesus, you do nevertheless already sit there in him. Not with him, but in him. Unlike Abraham of old, this world is not your home. You are a stranger and a pilgrim passing through. On your way to your heavenly mansion, which your Saviour has graciously gone to prepare for you. Verse 2 again. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Those who are trusting in Jesus and who have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they rejoice. That stands to reason, doesn't it? The person who has peace with God has every reason to rejoice now and forevermore. Interestingly, the Greek word that is translated rejoice in verse 2 is translated glory in the very next verse, in verse 3, which we'll be coming to soon. But uh, get that in your head. Rejoice and glory, same Greek word. Rejoice speaks of an overflow of joy from the soul. And glory speaks of an overflow of joy in triumph. And that's how it is. 
Although Christians most certainly have nothing to glory in with respect to their own endeavours, their own achievements, they nevertheless have every reason to glory in what? In the finished work of redemption of their Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. His triumphal resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heavenly glory. We have reason to rejoice and to glory in Jesus. According to verse 2, Christians rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Oftentimes, when you hope for something good to happen, what happens? It doesn't happen, does it? We can all hope for good things to happen, but there are no guarantees in life. However, when your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, you have a certain hope that you will have a desired outcome and it is a hope that is well worth rejoicing about. The hope of glory. It is a hope that reaches up to heaven where believers will enjoy fellowship with the multitude of the blood-washed throng from all nations and kindreds and people and tongues forevermore. What a wonderful hope that is. Every reason to rejoice. But most of all, it is a hope that will take all who have peace with God into the presence of Jesus. They most certainly will see the face of him whom, having not seen, they love, in whom, though now they see him not, yet believing, they rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Well, have a look at verses 3 through to 5 in Romans chapter 5. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Not only do believers rejoice in the certain hope of heavenly glory, but also in tribulations. When you appreciate that tribulations means oppression, affliction and distress, they are nothing in and of themselves to rejoice or glory about. And thank God that in the future glory there will be no more tribulations. As it is written in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Even as I'm reading that, I'm thinking of Mike, who has finished with all his tribulations. He is now in the presence of his Saviour, Jesus Christ. The glory spoken of in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 is not so much in the tribulations 
themselves, but in knowing that they proceed from a loving Heavenly Father. That's important to realise, Christian, when you experience tribulation. We've seen this in, uh, in the mornings in 1 Peter as well, fiery trials. The fiery, the fiery trials, they come from God. who is working all things out for his glory and for the good of the afflicted believer. Although tribulation is nothing but penalty for the wicked, for the unbelieving, it is used by God as a means for drawing his children nearer to himself. And that has to be a good thing. We can see how it is that tribulation is a blessing from God and something over which you rejoice and you glory if you are a Christian. First of all, we see in these verses that glory, uh, that rather, that tribulation worketh patience. Tribulation worketh patience. If you put those words alongside James chapter 1 and verse 3, where it is written, the testing of your faith worketh patience, you can see that tribulation means testing of faith. Tribulation worketh patience in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, and in James chapter 1 and verse 3, the testing of your faith worketh patience. Tribulation equals testing of faith. And that serves to produce patience or perseverance in all who have a genuine saving faith in Jesus. If you don't have a genuine saving faith, well, what happens when tribulation comes along? You disappear. You're gone. Unlike the Israelites of old who murmured when they were hungry and when they were thirsty in the wilderness, the true believer whose gaze is steadfastly fixed on Jesus He will persevere when afflicted and he will submit to the will of God, trusting in God to supply all his needs, even in his deathbed. Such people keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, who himself endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We should never, remember, never forget, rather, the affliction of the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross when he bare away our sins. We see in verse 4 that patience works experience. That word experience means proof. Therefore, taking it from verse 3, paraphrasing it, we can read it as, as follows. We rejoice in the tests of our faith, also knowing that the test of faith produces submission to the will of God and submission to the will of God is proof. Proof of what? It is proof of the genuineness of the faith of the person who is tested or who is undergoing trials. It proves that he is wheat and not chaff, that he is righteous and not ungodly, that he is a child of God and not a child of the devil, that his Lord and Saviour really is 
Jesus Christ. Paul ends with hope. As such, the tests of faith or tribulations that professing Christians experience, they serve to confirm that the hope of glory that they have in Christ is genuine and it really does apply to them. Putting it another way, if you went through life never having any tribulation, dear Christian, and life was one big walk in the park, you wouldn't know if your faith was real or not. You really wouldn't. It's when the going gets tough and you look to heaven. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And you look to God to be your refuge, your fortress, your everything. Finally, looking at verse 5 here. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. When the redeemed undergo tribulations or tests of faith, the hope of glory that they have through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will not ultimately prove to be a hope that is built on sand, And that is because God gives them the Holy Spirit to abide in their hearts. So when you go through all those trials, you're not alone because you have the Holy Spirit with you. Or at least you do, if you really are a Christian. Dear Christian, the Holy Spirit is the earnest or the deposit of your heavenly inheritance. In other words, he is the deposit or the earnest of the hope that you have. By giving you the Holy Spirit, God has given you the absolute assurance that when you die, you will go to heaven to be with Jesus. No matter what trials and tests of faith you undergo in the meantime. With God indwelling you, those trials, no matter how painful they may be, will confirm that you have peace with God and that God has loved you with an everlasting love. And along with the hymn writer you can say, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this 